0: morning my name is Brad I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge and it's our privilege and pleasure to have you with us uh, this morning here at Jericho And as we start into our uh, teaching time this morning, I'm going to do a little bit of a history lesson for you. So I know David will be excited. He teaches history and the rest of you will try not to fall asleep while we do this. But um, one of the things that is important for us to remember historically is that in the first and second centuries, it was very, very difficult to be a Christian to, to claim that as part of your identity. And part of the challenge was that in the first and second century, wave after wave of persecution emerged uh, against the Christian movement. And we see this actually starting right away in the book of Acts. We see uh, Saul, who became later Paul, his job was to persecute people who claimed that they were Christians. He went from city to city working to persecute uh, the church. And the persecution of early Christians moved very quickly from a religious kind of persecution by other established traditions into a state-sanctioned persecution rooted in a political vision to crush out any vestiges of anything that was perceived to threaten the state. See, the empire of that day, Rome, required that all of its citizens profess its political leader, Caesar, as Lord and give the empire homage and penultimate respect. And Christians, as they looked at that and lived under that kind of a system, said, well, we can't in good conscience do that because we profess and claim Jesus as Lord Lord over all. And so therefore, if Jesus is Lord, Caesar can't be Lord. Caesar has authority. Yes, Caesar is to be respected, but not to be worshipped in the way that the Roman Empire was demanding. And so the stark reality for the first several hundred years of those who said they were a part of the Christian tradition is that if you refused to swear public allegiance to Caesar, you paid for it. And sometimes you paid for it in little ways, and sometimes you paid for it in ultimate ways. I can remember uh, the first time that I visited Italy and went to Rome and stood in the Colosseum and looked down and thought, in this very place, Christians were martyred, crowds cheered the fact that these people were being killed for their faith. Or if you read through history into the Middle Ages and into the Reformation, you read stories of our Anabaptist forebearers who were persecuted for their convictions and for uh, their faith. If you follow me on Twitter, you know I'm, recent, I'm right now reading uh, the biography of John Wesley. And he lived 300 years ago in England. And he decided that uh, he was an evangelist. And he was going to go and preach to people who were not being reached by the state church of his day. And so he went to places like preach outdoors in fields. And people persecuted him. They would assemble mobs And as he started to preach, they would throw bricks and rocks at him. Or in many places, they would whip up uh, dogs or bulls into a frenzy. And they'd set them loose in the middle of this congregation. And as a way of trying to get rid of these people who were naming the name of Jesus. And you begin to realize when you look back through history, that hostility or persecution or opposition has very frequently been part and parcel of what it means to identify with Christ. Amen. And so we live in somewhat of a privileged age, in a privileged place, because when it comes to facing persecution in the Western world, by historic standards, we really don't. <laughs> we're a bit of an, a blip on the historical radar. We're an exemption to the rule because we're unaccustomed to that style of opposition and hostility. But one of the most famous martyrs of the early church. Uh, that I think we can learn something from was a man by the name of Polycarp. He was the second century bishop of a city in Smyrna. And his story is recorded in a letter that was written by his church, the Church of Smyrna, to another church. And in it, we read about how the state decided that Polycarp, because he was a leader, needed to be dealt with. And so, Polycarp was a wanted man. When he found out about this, the letter says, he desired to remain in the city, but the majority induced him to withdraw. So he retired to a farm not far from the city and stayed with friends doing nothing else night and day but praying for churches throughout the world. And while he was praying, it so happened that three days before his ultimate arrest, he had a vision that God gave him. And it was a vision of his pillow on fire. And turning to those who were with him, he said, I believe that I'm going to be burned alive. And so those who were with him said, well, then you got to get out of here, Polycarp. And so they moved him to another farm. And when the authorities were searching for him arrived, they didn't find him. They seized two young slaves and under torture, they got them to confess where Polycarp was. And so later that evening, they came and they found him in the upper room in a small cottage. And even at that point, they said, okay, you're going to get a head start. You can escape to another farm if you want. But he did not wish to do so, saying, God's will be done. And he went downstairs, and he talked with them. And while those who looked on marveled at his age and constancy, that there should be such zeal and wisdom in an old man. He was in his 80s at this point. And Polycarp comes to them, those that are there, to arrest him. And he orders that they be provided food and drink. And he says, I need you to give me time to pray. And so he says, you just order whatever you want. It's on the house. And undisturbed, he prays for two hours. And he was so filled with the grace of God That the amazement of those who heard him, many repented that they had come to arrest such a devout old man. But eventually they did arrest him and when he was brought to the arena, the proconsul in charge persuaded him and said, Polycarp, deny your faith and I will let you go. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, change your mind, take the oath of Caesar and I will release you. Just, Just do it. You don't even have to mean it in your heart. Just say, I curse Christ. And Polycarp said this, 86 years have I served him, and he has never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? Such wisdom and faith. He was sentenced immediately to death, and as the flames began to consume his body, the secular historians present recorded that He was praying, and these are the words of his prayer. Lord God Almighty, Father of the beloved servant Jesus Christ, through whom we have received full knowledge of thee, the God of angels and powers and all of creation and the whole race of the righteous who live in your presence, I bless thee because you have deemed me worthy of this day and this hour to take my place in the number of the martyrs. For this and everything, I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you, through the eternal heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved servant, through whom be glory to him and the Holy Spirit, both now and in the ages to come. Amen. Makes me, when I read a story like that, think, what does it look like to stand firm in your convictions, and in your faith. What does it mean? For Polycarp, he paid a very high price. What does it look like for us? Well, we're embarking on a teaching series here at Jericho entitled Serpents and Doves. And this phrase comes to us from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. And Christ instructs his followers... To be as wise as serpents and also as innocent or as blameless as doves. And Jesus uses the word picture of these two animals to try and describe how you might conduct yourself in wisdom, with wisdom in the face of hostility. But the question remains, how do you know when to be a serpent to stand firm or to run away? And how do you know when to be a dove to respond with gentleness and with innocence? The word picture is there. Sometimes we need to, when we're challenged, stand firm and clear and unmovable. And sometimes you need to respond with gentleness. Like Polycarp, sometimes the path of wisdom means get out of town. Sometimes it means feeding those who come to arrest you. Sometimes it means you stand your ground no matter what the cost is. Almost sounds like a song, doesn't it? You've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. Before I go too far down that trail, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, or on your devices. Uh, there's a Bible in the Jericho Ridge app, and so you're welcome to download that. The words will also appear on the screen. For you to follow along as I read. And this morning we're going to look at that passage in Matthew 10. Where Jesus gives those words of instruction. Be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. We're going to explore together what is Jesus saying to us. Individually and collectively. Matthew chapter 10. We'll look at verse 16. Which is where the phrase appears in. Jesus saying to his disciples. Says look. Look. I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and you will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings before you, because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. So what is Jesus saying here? What does it mean to live with wisdom, especially given the reality that you and I are not very likely statistically to be arrested and burned at the stake for professing to be a Christian? Well, we're going to look at the the verses before this verse. And then we'll read through to some of them after because it'll help give us a little bit of an understanding that what Jesus is saying is not just applicable to martyrs like Polycarp, but it applies to all of us as we're going about our business in our homes and neighborhoods and schools and places of work because each of us needs to know when do we need to exhibit wisdom and what does that look like? And that's because each of us actually has an assignment. And if you're here today and you identify as a follower of Jesus, when Jesus says in verse 16, I am sending you out, that is a commission not just for Matthew who wrote it down or James or Judas or Peter or any of the original 12 disciples who Jesus was present with. But this word also applies, this commission also applies to everyone who identifies as a follower of Jesus today and at any time in history. A sense of being commissioned, a sense of being sent, a sense of what it means to be an ambassador like Mike talked about last week. Jesus uses language, uh, farming language, to describe this oftentimes. That he's sending his followers out because there's a harvest. Jesus is sending out workers into the harvest. And that's why here at Jericho, when we talk about our mission statement, you see it up on the banner here, that our sense of what God has invited us to is to cultivate disciples of Jesus who embody God's love everywhere we go. And our purpose, our existence as a church is to try and create environments where you can explore faith and you can grow in a dynamic relationship with Jesus so that everywhere you go, you go as an ambassador of God and God's love. You're going to find yourself in a whole range of situations as you go through the course of this week. And it takes wisdom to know how in each situation you should respond And in his discussion on when to be serpent-like and when to be dove-like, Jesus gives both his original hearers and us five things that can help us walk with wisdom. So we're going to look at those together. Look with me at Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. The first thing that Jesus gives his followers is the gift of authority, Matthew 10.1 says Jesus called his 12 disciples together and he gave them authority. He gave them his authority to cast out evil spirits, to heal every kind of disease and illness. Jesus gave a clear sense of his authority to those who are following him. And this is the same way as if you're in an employment situation. If you're an employer and you give someone an assignment, the first question that you should ask yourself is, did I also give this person the right level of authority necessary to carry out this assignment? And so Jesus is clear that he has given us the appropriate level of authority to carry out what he's asked us to do. Jesus knows that when he's sending his followers out into the world, that Day in and day out, there's going to be a sense of struggle and challenge because it's a spiritual battle. Jesus knows that as we go into the world, it brings us into conflict with the principalities and powers and forces of evil that are expressed both systemically and specifically. And when we take new ground spiritually, we're going to encounter opposition and hardship. And we need to then live our lives in such a way that we don't just rely on our own personal sense of authority and wisdom. We need the authority that Jesus gives to us. And there's tons of things that we can do in our lives that will diminish or undercut the authority that Jesus has given to us. For example, if we continue willfully to harbor areas of resistance to God and sin in our own lives, or if we choose a path that shies away from doing difficult and hard things that God's put in front of us to do. Because sometimes when we encounter opposition or something is hard, we think to ourselves, well, maybe that wasn't God's will. Maybe I should just give up. Maybe that was just, you know, the fact that there's opposition might signal that I shouldn't do it. But sometimes when you encounter opposition, maybe you're sharing your faith with a co-worker, or maybe, for example, here at Jericho corporately, we've moved into a new neighborhood. We're undertaking a significant uh, renovation of our building so that, not just so we can have a shiny building, so that, We can take new ground spiritually and see people come into a vitalized relationship with Jesus. And so when we step out, oftentimes in the authority that God's given to us, there will be times when we'll meet with opposition. And we should expect that. That's why Jesus is saying, you need my authority, (laughs) because you're going to encounter challenges in this situation. And Jesus wants to remind us that we are equipped to face some of those hardships, Because of the authority that he has given to us. Jesus says, as my followers, you're heading out into the world. And so, I'm sending you out, not as orphans, but I'm going with you and I'm giving you my authority. And so, you need to be reminded today that you have the authority that you need to do whatever the assignment is that God has given to you. We have the authority that we need, Jericho, to fulfill all of the assignments that God has given and is giving to us as a church here in this city and in this neighborhood because we have Christ's authority. So that's the first thing that Jesus is clear on. He doesn't just call his disciples together and send them out and go, have a good time, gang, you know, hope that works out well for you. He says, no, I'm sending you out with my authority, Because you're going to encounter some opposition. And the second thing he says that Jesus gives to his followers is an assignment. A clear and specific set of instructions. Look at Matthew 10 verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, go. Announce that the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is coming or is amongst you. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cure those with leprosy. Cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. Jesus gives us clear instructions that in our going, we are to generously and regularly declare the love of God for all people. And we're to demonstrate that through radical generosity. I love how Jesus goes on to say that wherever his followers go, they should be a blessing to the city or the town where they live live, where they go. Sometimes I hear people talk about the fact that, and when I worked in the restaurant industry for, for years, um, the talk in our restaurant was how, how little people enjoyed working on Sundays. Because right after church at noon, a bunch of Christians would come in, they tipped horribly, and they were generally quite nasty to our staff. And so the Christians got quite a bad reputation in our restaurant, so much that we actually decided we were going to close on Sundays so that we didn't have to put up with that. What a horrible thing to have as a reputation. Jesus says your reputation as Christians, as people of faith, should be that wherever you go, that you are a blessing. You are such a blessing to the people that you encounter that they go, I am so glad these people are here. Christians, when they've gone places through history, have been those that have taken it upon themselves to bless and see the needs around them and meet them. That's why all over the place, there are even here in our city, if you think about a hospital like St. Paul's, established for a vision by a monastic community to create care for people that needed health care. Whole educational systems throughout the world were built by Christians saying people need to learn. That would be great if we could just bring and lift people up out of places of poverty. Hospitals, healthcare systems, there's areas of the world that have written languages because of the efforts of people of faith. Most historians and sociologists, even if they are critical of Christians agree that on the whole, on the balance, Christianity has been a blessing to the world. Not all Christians have been a blessing to the world, but as a whole, Christians have, when they have gone into places, have carried the love of God with them and have lived out of that place and been an incalculable blessing to the global human family. And here at Jericho, that's one of the things that I love about all of you is that you take this commission or this assignment seriously. Some of my proudest moments as a pastor are when I'm sitting in a coffee shop and I hear people at another table talking and they're talking about one of you. And they're saying things like, you know those people from Jericho Ridge? You know that person, they were up and they told me about how they were down at a recovery center helping love people well there. Or... Do you know, that group, I've heard about that group that feeds the poor, people who are poor, and treats them with dignity. Or aren't you part of that people at Jericho that are involved with those who need recovery? Aren't you part of that little group of people at Jericho who over the course of the last four years has helped support three refugee families in their life in, as new Canadians? Aren't you that person that leads a running club or coaches a little league sports team to help connect people in their life with a community around them? Aren't you that teacher who cares for people, for your students? Are all those people from Jericho, those, I love them. They're the best neighbors in our complex. They're always ready to help. All those people from Jericho, those are the ones who speak words of blessing and encouragement online and don't get involved in stupid arguments. Jericho, it is our assignment to be a blessing wherever God places you. You are to be an ambassador of God's love wherever you go this week. And so your assignment is to to think about this week as you go through the week, who could I bless in the name of Christ? Where could I be a blessing Where could I practice radical hospitality? Where could I open my home? Where could I speak a word of blessing to someone who is discouraged? Where is there a neighbor who is sick and needs a meal? Where is there a friend or a fellow teacher who's struggling to make it through June? Take extra time to give them support. Help move a couch. Help mow a lawn. Be a radical blessing to someone around you this week in the name of Christ. That's our role in this community, to be a blessing, to figure out, keep praying and listening to God and saying, God, how do you want us to bless the people in these complexes around us? How are we going to be a blessing to this neighborhood? But if being Christians was all about sunshine and roses and being a blessing and everybody was like, wonderful, the Christians are here, Jesus would not have had to say, you need to be shrewd like snakes. In addition to sending us out into the world with his authority and with an assignment, Jesus also gives a clear warning. In verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So just in case you didn't grow up in a farming community, let me be clear. Wolves and sheep don't get along. You don't put them in the same pens. Wolves kill sheep for food and for sport. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you might be going out into the world and working to be a blessing to people, But people might oppose you. You're going to experience, even as you attempt to be a blessing, opposition. And the opposition might come from all kinds of places. It might be spiritual or demonic. It might be interpersonal. It might have to do with that person that you're trying to be a blessing to, their own history or their own baggage There might be systemic areas where you run into challenges, where laws or authorities oppose the declaration and vision and values of God's kingdom and heart for the world. But Jesus is saying, gang, we should not be surprised when not everybody is just delighted to receive the blessing that you give to them. Because Jesus warned you that it would happen. Jesus didn't say, you're being sent out like sheep amongst other happy and well-behaved sheep. And he certainly didn't say, Hey, sheep, it's super dangerous and hard out there. It would be really great if you just all huddled up in the sheepfold all together and made sure that we didn't lose anybody. Jesus says, No, go. Go into all of the world, his commission, Matthew, preach the gospel, make disciples. And so in that process of going is where it's often that we encounter opposition. Jesus didn't invite it, but he also didn't fear it. And this is where wisdom is required. There's another Christian leader who was a contemporary. He lived at the same time as Polycarp. His name was Quintus. And Quintus thought to himself, well, that didn't go super well for a bunch of martyrs. I wonder if instead of resisting authorities, if we just sort of willingly ran into their arms and, and said to them, here we are, do with us as you will, uh, maybe we could change their minds and their hearts. And so he convinced others to join him as a martyr, thinking that it might be a way to turn the hearts of the oppressors around. But the opposition was so fierce that Quintus ended up publicly recanting his faith in the Colosseum and he did more harm than good. He was not using wisdom in the way that he interacted. And so Jesus warns us that the process of representing him well in the world will not be easy And there's no formula for it. It's challenging. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 verses 19 and following. After he's given them the instruction, go, but beware. Matthew 19, when you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond, what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. For it's not you who will be speaking. It will be the spirit of your father or the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit speaking through you. A brother... Will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. Children will rebel against their parents, cause them to be killed. And all nations will hate you because you are my followers. But everyone who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus paints not an unclear picture that there will be times and moments of hostility. But the hostility that Jesus is talking about in this passage is hostility toward the message of the gospel, even when it's presented with gentleness and respect. And here again, Jesus says, I'm going to give you what you need in that moment. He's going to give us, fourthly, words to speak. See, for some people, for some of you, the words to speak part is the easy part, for others, that's a really hard part. You think to yourself, I, I literally do not know what I would say if somebody asked me a hard question about my faith. Or if somebody in my workplace started bashing those idiotic Christians who go around spewing vitriolic hatred against gay people all the time. you are like, I don't know what I would say. I, I, you'd feel frozen or paralyzed in that moment. Well, the likelihood is that it's difficult to know and anticipate every possible situation that you would find yourself in and what to say. And so that's why Jesus promises such a great gift to us here. Jesus says, in those moments when you're feeling like, okay, I'm stepping out. I'm trying to bear witness to my faith in a way that is authentic. And then someone asks something difficult or you run into opposition. Jesus says, don't worry about it. I'm going to give you the words to say in that moment. I love the way that Peter expresses this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 16. Peter says, if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry about it. Don't be afraid of their threats. If someone asks you about your hope as a believer, say, why is it that you're so focused on or joyful in the midst of challenges? Or why is it that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? He says, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way, keeping your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Peter says, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. In those moments. But he also is clear that in order to have the authority to speak those kinds of words, you have to conduct yourself with gentleness, with respect, and you have to keep your conscience clear. Sometimes I hear Christians say things like, you know, my coworkers, they just don't like me because I'm a Christian, which may be true. Sometimes when I ask their coworkers, know about the same person that I, I say, do you, you know, what's your read on that person? And uh, they'll say, that person? Well, oh, they're a total jerk. And, uh, and so sometimes I'm a little bit concerned that people interpret persecution against them as hostility towards their faith when it might actually be hostility towards the vibes they're giving off and the way they act in their workplace or their school, So it might be true that you may not have gotten that promotion because you blocked off Sunday morning to be part of your Christian community on your schedule. Or you might get a snide comment if you read your Bible on a coffee break. But it's important to remember that the opposition that Jesus is speaking about here and the opposition Peter's talking about occurs because the message is a stumbling block, not because the messenger is a stumbling block. And so it doesn't The opposition doesn't come because of the aggressive or belligerent behavior of the messenger. If you experience opposition to an invitation to come to Jericho in your neighborhood because you're a jerk to your neighbors, don't try to blame that on the fact that, oh, they're just persecuting you as a Christian. That's not the definition of persecution. That's just you being an idiot. So smarten up. before you go and extend an invitation to make the rest of us look bad. But Jesus does promise, however, that when you move to that place of dependency on the Spirit and you step out in that place, and even into a place of opposition, when you depend on the Holy Spirit, that God is able to give you words to speak in those moments when you're not sure what to say. And we're going to talk more about that next week because next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, and we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit's role in our lives and in the world today. And so Jesus continues with his instructions and ends his instructions with a word of encouragement. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 23 to 26. Jesus says, when you're persecuted in one town, you may need to flee to the next one. And I tell you the truth, the Son of Man will return before you've reached all of the towns of Israel. Students are not greater than their teacher. Slaves are not greater than their master. So students are to be like their teacher. Slaves are representatives or to be like their master. And Jesus says, since I, the master of the household, have been called the prince of demons, just someone giving Jesus a backhanded compliment, the members of my household are likely to be called by even worse names. But do not be afraid. Jesus says. See, Jesus not only gives us his authority, not only gives us an assignment, gives us a clear sense of warning that it will be difficult, and a promise that we will be given words to speak, but also Jesus gives us an example to follow. Jesus says, I'm not going to allow you to be subjected to anything that I myself did not walk through. Jesus was called names and persecuted. And so as followers of Jesus, you might expect to receive similar treatment. But notice what Jesus says the response needs to be. Do not be afraid. Whatever wisdom looks like in those moments, sometimes Jesus stood directly up to authority and challenge. Those in political or religious authority. Herod wanted to kind of swing Jesus over into political activism, and Jesus says to him at one place in the the Gospels, you go tell that fox, I will have no part of his business. I'm going to preach, I'm going to teach, and if he wants to come over here and chop my head off, so be it. So he was very definitive. Sometimes Jesus actually walked right into, knowing that there was going to be conflict, a situation and he said, you know what? This conflict is actually necessary to advance the kingdom of God. Oftentimes he walked into places where there was religious legalism and dead faith and he just went there and said, no. We're gonna name this and we're gonna see what the spirit of God does to stir up people into vitalize relationship with God. And then sometimes Jesus led by not saying anything. Just letting those who were fuming mad just keep fuming, and he just walked away and said nothing. And sometimes Jesus led by laying down his life and choosing the path of sacrifice and gentle love. This is difficult choices to make and difficult to know what to do. And a few years ago, you might remember, there were these little bracelets that people would put on their arms, on their wrists, and it would say W-W-J-D, which stands for what would Jesus do. And I have to confess, when they came out, uh, I admired the question, but I wondered at the fact of being overly simplistic and reductionistic. Like, was the, sometimes the attempt seemed to be to whatever situation you were in to just reduce it to some kind of formula. And the truth is, most of the situations, I don't know about you, but most of the situations I face in my week that I'm going to encounter, I'm not 100% sure what would Jesus do. There's no formula that I can plug in. Would Jesus tell me to pray for healing for this person or tell them, you know what, you should probably go see your doctor? Would Jesus want you to go on a short term mission trip to with us to Guatemala next March March break or give money to somebody else who goes? I don't know. But that's kind of the point. In those moments where you're unsure, where you're unclear, where the bracelet or the formula doesn't help you, and trust me, there's lots of them, I'm not sure that what we need is a bracelet. What we need is a conversation. I don't need to give in to fear and become paralyzed. I need to pause and say, Jesus, what would you do in this situation? I need a conversation with the living God. And that's what Jesus is offering here. Jesus himself modeled radical, daily, active dependence on God. Jesus was always asking God, what should I do? Jesus was always seeking wisdom from his heavenly father. And there's no formula. I wish that there was for following Jesus into the world. And this is why wisdom is required. Sometimes you need to follow Jesus' example and be bold. Sometimes you need to sit still and rest and let God work it out. And so the question today is what is it that you need Maybe you're here today, and the very idea that you can have an active, personal conversation with the God of the universe is a new idea, because for you, you think of God as a distant, impersonal force, who set the maybe even set the world in motion, but doesn't care about you at all. But the marvelous truth that we hold to is that God is so personal and also so powerful. God knows everything about you, knows everything about your life, past, present, and future. And yet, God still loves you deeply and personally, despite anything and everything that you have done. And God still says to you, I want you to be a part of my family. The door is always open. And so maybe for you today, what you need is to receive that invitation to come home and be part of God's family. Maybe you've been estranged from God for a long time and you've been distant and you've been keeping God at arm's length and saying, I don't know, God, I'm gonna do life on my own. And maybe for you, today is the day that you say, you know what, God, I need you in my life. I need, again, to recognize that you care and you love me and you want to give me wisdom for the day-to-day situations of my life, for parenting, for finances, for facing the future, for dealing with fear and anxiety. And so, friend, if you're in a place today where you've never made that commitment or you've been holding God at a distance, don't leave here today without saying yes to God. And we do that just in a simple prayer, saying, God, I believe that you are a personal God, that you care about me, that you want to be in a relationship with me, and I want to know you. Would you open that doorway? In humility, I receive. I need you. I want to walk with you. Maybe for you today, you're in a relationship with God. You've been a Christian for a while, but you need to strengthen it. Maybe you uh, are called into a relationship with God, and the reminder today for you is that the purpose of God calling you into his family is not so that you can feel great and go to heaven when you die, but you've been commissioned to be a blessing for the sake of the world. And so we use three uh, body parts to help us remember this and think about some possible responses to God today. Maybe for you, you need to ask God in prayer for your eyes to be open. Because it's so easy to go through our lives without even noticing the people around us that need to receive a blessing because of the faith that God has given to you. And so maybe today you need to pray and ask God to open your eyes. Even to open your eyes to see as you walk out of this building a harvest field of people who need God all Around us. One way that I remember this is something called a practice of fixed hour prayer. Uh, in Luke 10, verse 2, Jesus says, I'm sending you out as workers into the harvest. Pray that workers, more workers, would go into the harvest. And so what I do is I set a silent alarm on my wrist every day. It buzzes at 10:02 a.m. And I use that as my reminder to pray and say, okay, God, I'm going to pay attention today. I want to ask you again, God, give me eyes to see my neighbors that need you. Give me eyes to see the world in need. Give me eyes to see what you're doing in your church. And so if for you, you want to strengthen that that ability to see what God is up to, just try setting a time. Pick a time that works for you and set an alarm on your phone or in some way And it's just your reminder to say, God, I want to be available and pay attention to what it is that you're doing. Give me your eyes to see what's going on around me today. Maybe you need a reminder today to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Maybe for you, your takeaway this morning is to say, okay, in between now and next week, I'm going to find somebody to bless Maybe there's a single parent on your block that needs their lawn mowed. Just walk across the street and do it. Maybe there's a student in your class that as you look at and think about their summer, you think they're really going to struggle. Take an interest, figure out. You've got a couple weeks left to figure out are there support structures you could put in place or help with that would be a blessing to their family. Take an interest, figure it out. Where could you be the hands and feet Of Jesus this week. And then the last one is maybe for you, you struggle with boldness and speaking those words of courage. And so maybe you need to ask God for courage, that God would give you words to speak boldness. It can be really difficult and challenging to speak about your faith. And so perhaps our time together this morning, and as we go through this series, we're going to talk more about what that looks like and how we can do that in practical ways. And maybe this week you need to be on assignment to look for opportunities to share about the hope that God has given to you. Maybe it's something as simple as saying, hey, I was volunteering at my church this week. We were helping clean something up and see if that sparks a conversation or talk about something that you're learning or that God is doing in your life. Share your story as God opens and gives you open doors. So as we spend some time responding to God in worship, Tammy and the team are going to come. Maybe pick one of those three, eyes or hands or mouth, and just ask God to give you a sense of boldness and faith and give you a specific assignment as you go into your week this week.